You are listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Colson Whitehead. Whitehead joined Morning Edition host Rick Ganley at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to discuss his latest novel, Crook Manifesto, the second book in a trilogy that began with Harlem Shuffle. Crook Manifesto takes Whitehead's main character, furniture salesman and fence Ray Carney, into the tumultuous Harlem of the 1970s. This conversation was recorded live on July 20th, 2023. How do you do? Thanks for, thanks for coming out tonight. I usually spend um, Thursday nights at home in my apartment weeping over my regrets, so this is a nice change of pace for me anyway. And congratulations to seat A111. Um, I understand you have some good news. So I'm going to read briefly from a Crook Manifesto, the sequel to Harlem Shuffle, and some of the, the cast from the first book comes back, including Pepper, who's sort of like a taciturn, half-sociopath criminal. In this section, um, he gets a job offer. And it's a 1970, well, 73, but it's a flashback to 65. Lady Betsy had owned that corner since before the war, an uptown chicken legend since the Great Depression. A refreshing scorpion spike of heat lay hidden in the collards, and the mac and cheese was a symphony of competing textures, but the chicken was divine, fried in the very skillet of heaven. The house dredge was no mere spicy dusting of cornmeal, but a crispy concoction of buttermilk, flour, and dream stuff. To penetrate that ball of, that wall of batter and gain the meat inside was to storm the keep of pleasure. Local politicians and famous songsmiths posed with the owner in photographs amid framed citations and plaques from the spectrum of Harlem organizations, the big, the the small, and the spurious. A Big Apple tours bus used to make a special trip uptown, and white people from all over the country, perhaps kin to the very same white people who had persecuted Lady Betsy down south, poured out of the vehicle to partake until an incident in which a neighborhood rummy exposed himself in an especially aggressive anatomical display. That put an end to the anthropology. Then Viola opened her joint across the street, 1965. She was a slim, dark-eyed lady of indeterminate age and overdetermined mystery. She hailed from a witchy backwater in Louisiana and showed up in New York City with a carpet bag of money. 
It was said she'd enchanted the air of a colored beauty product dynasty with a handful of goofer dust. She set herself up on the corner of 136th in Amsterdam. The grand opening was less than spectacular. How could this upstart compete? Eventually, curiosity and the oddly alluring scent from the new country kitchen exhaust pipe won out. The surprising verdict? They did a pretty good bird in there. Existential arguments over which establishment fried the best chicken became a barbershop staple. Each joint converted its disciples, but Harlem is a sentimental place and set in its ways, and when, white, when the white world can take away you and yours in an instant, some folks hold on to the sure and the same. Lady Betsy's maintain the advantage. Opening a chicken joint across from a fabled Harlem landmark was a provocation. It's a free country, Viola told Pepper. I don't see what the big deal is really, she said, lying breezily. Her voice was low and husky, and she cut her syllables with the precision of a butcher. If her chicken is that good, it shouldn't matter if a dozen chicken joints open up on the block. This conversation happened in Donegal's, one foggy night in the summer of 68. Somehow, Viola had materialized next to Pepper at the bar without him noticing, witchy. Her black hair was woven into long Indian braids that lay across her white linen blouse like two serpents. He recognized her. He'd supped in New Country Kitchen a few times when the line was too long across the street, but had remained loyal to Lady Betsy, more or less. I hear you pulled jobs, she said. She acknowledged the facts of the case. She and her competitor were stalemated in their struggle for control of the mid-Harlem chicken trade. I stand by my product and believe it to be superior to my competitors, but this war must end definitively, once and for all, kaput. To that end, she wanted to retain Pepper's services for a heist. There was a rogue ingredient in Lady Betsy's chicken, among the paprika and cayenne and garlic powder, an element X, and Viola could not identify it, try as she might. Last night I woke up in a tremble, certain that it was a pickle juice and the buttermilk brine. It was not. As long as variable eluded her, the war continued. In his decades uptown, Pepper had stayed out of Harlem's innumerable turf battles and gangster intrigues. He disdained the mainstream criminal class for its insipid codes, grubby designs, and the low-quality individual it attracted. Fuck him. Viola's contest with Lady Betsy was as urgent as any mob war, with casualties measured and customers lost instead of soldiers fallen. He was stirred by her proposal to steal her recipe for the fried chicken. They did a deal for the chicken job, shook hands, and the restaurateur disappeared into the Broadway mist. Thanks. Well, good evening, and thanks so much for coming out to the music hall tonight for what I know I've been looking forward to, I imagine you have too, this conversation with Colson Whitehead. 
By the way, as a matter of reintroduction, I'm Rick Anley, and usually I spend most of my time alone in a windowless room, dimly lit. <laughs> <laughs> and this is very different. <laughs> I'm a little freaked out, but I, I, I've been so, for, uh, so looking forward to this conversation, Colson, and um, I can say that in talking with Colson backstage for a while, he is as delightful as you might think, and as interesting as you might think as well, and this latest book, which I have just finished in the last couple of weeks, um, is a fun ride. It really is a great, great read, and I am so excited that you're doing a trilogy with this, and I know you've got the third book, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that later on. Very cool. Yeah, but if you have not picked up, well, obviously tonight you're getting your book, but I, uh, you're in for a good read. You're going for a good weekend, I think, with it. Um, by way of introduction, you're a native New Yorker? Yeah, born and bred. I, I wish I could live somewhere else, but it hasn't really worked out. <laughs> and that's what I've heard. Once you're there, you're there. You're in. Um, what draws you in particular to write about Harlem? Well, I mean, I, I keep coming back to the city. You know, there are certain themes I keep returning to over this last 25 years. Um, history, race in America, pop culture, and the city. And I'm always trying, I think I'm just trying to get it right. Um, I've written about New York in an allegorical way in my first book, The Intuitionist, which takes place in a kind of uh, alternative noir city. Um, Zone One, my zombie novel, takes place in New York, and it's kind of a utopian city because uh, everyone's dead. It's after the apocalypse. Everyone's dead, and no one can hassle you in a supermarket. There's no competition for taxis and stuff like that. <laughs> and then this is like a straightforward, realistic version of New York, um, a New York that I was not really around for. Harlem Shuffle uh, takes place before I was born, and the action and Crook Manifesto takes place when I was five or six. So... Um, I'm really just trying to, you know, in this book, trying to uh, recreate without allegory, uh, without sci-fi flourishes, uh, the city. So how did that feel, to, to write it that way? And you say it's more of a, a realistic portrayal rather than um, a future dystopian feel to it. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, a, um, it has its own uh, pleasures and also challenges. Um, so uh, the intuitionist, not a lot of place names, the streets are very generic. And in this one, I'm recreating Harlem, and hopefully people who were there in the 60s and 70s can recognize it. People who have visited New York can pick up on the energy and recognize the energy. And I guess you asked why, um, and I had written two books in the South, Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys, and I was ready to get back to New York. And um, if you're gonna write a crime story with a black cast in New York City, it's either Harlem or Brooklyn, and um, there's just more research to be had about Harlem. <laughs> it's easier to research, it's closer to where I live, and so uh, uh, Harlem it was. Yeah, we should say that, of course, Harlem Shuffle takes place in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Crook Manifesto is, is a, a 70s uh, novel uh, in three acts, and this upcoming book, uh, which will be the third part of the trilogy, I. I Takes place in the 80s? It's going to be 80s, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, okay. it's the, it started off as a simple heist story, a Harlem Shuffle, and then I kept coming up with capers and jobs for my main character. So like, it became like three stories. Like stealing chicken recipes. So, yeah, and, and some, yeah, yeah, some fried chicken recipes. I uh, try to build out the world. Um, so the first book became three stories, and as I was writing it, I um, kept coming up with more, enough for two books. And then, you know, I grew up with Star Wars, and if you do... What's, what's two? What's two of something 
we need like a third item. So it became a trilogy. And um, I didn't announce it when Harlem Shuffle came out because what if I got bored? You know, with two, I want to lock myself in, you know, like George R. R. Martin. Everyone's like, when, yeah, when's it coming? I was like flashing back, flashing forward to my obituary, like, and he never finished that Harlem trilogy <laughs> that he announced. So now that I'm, you know, 50 pages in, I feel, ha I feel fine <laughs> announcing it. It seems like it's a natural act, you know, the three acts of, of life. In fact, I was, I, read, I was reading up on you in a commencement address that you gave in 2017. You compared the story of our lives to a novel saying that there were three acts. Act three is everything. If we don't have act three, we're really in trouble. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I'm thinking about Underground Railroad was, was, was a three-act arc right in there. Um, and of course, these, these stories, both uh, Harlem Shuffle and Crook Manifesto in three acts. It seems um, to be a, yeah, a theme. I'm a big outliner. And so um, definitely with the last couple of books, I've known the last image or sentence of the book before I start writing. And I'm writing toward it. And so um, uh, I do have a fairly well-defined beginning and the middle and the end. Um, I don't know everything. I don't know what people are wearing or their names, but I know the main characters. So I finished the first book and I started writing the second, and I figured I should actually plot out the third one, you know, um, in the same way. So I had to um, plot another 700 pages of story um, so that Harlem Shuffle is the first act and, and Crook Manifest is the second and the third book will We'll wrap it all up. So it's pretty daunting. I actually, I'm going to see Oppenheimer, you know, Christopher Nolan. So it was like three years ago. I was watching Inception. And I was like, oh, yeah, he always does that thing where he, you know, he really sees the ending and the beginning of the movie. I do that too. I can incept my own book. And so I, I just handed in Harlem Shuffle, but it hadn't been edited yet. And so I was, I was able to take stuff from the third book and put it and set it up in the first novel. Uh, in the second book, and so it's a well, I'm sure things will change, and, and some of the stuff I've seeded won't necessarily uh, come to fruition, but it's cool to sort of step back and then have this huge ca canvas and, and be in a story for, you know, for six years. I want to ask you a little bit more about that process, though, um, to have that kind of forethought to think ahead to, 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 to further parts of, of what your main character, Ray's life, would be like. Um, what's that process like? What's that thinking? Is that something that you are walking around with a notebook and something comes to mind? Or are you taking notes on your phone? Or is it something where you have a, a process where every day I sit down every morning and for two hours I'm just writing and what comes, comes? When I'm, when I'm working on the book, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, you know, sort of fully in it and everything around me is being sort of sucked into it um, for inspiration. I, I work from like 10 to 3. That's like a good day for me. Not every, I don't write every day, as some people say. That seems like an imposition on my time. So, um, <laughs> but if I can do eight pages a week, it adds up. You know, that's like 30-something a month, and then a year, you have like three, 300 pages. Is my, is my <laughs> boss around? Can I get that deal? That sounds pretty good. So, um, and then, um, yeah, I'm always taking notes. Like, it used to be in a notebook, but then I lost a notebook on a plane. Oh. And I got to the hotel, and I was like, oh, my God, I've lost it. And I was like, but I have such a great memory. I can recreate all that stuff. And so I scribbled for like an hour, and, and then I went back to the airport, and they found it, and I compared what my recreation to the original, 
And it was like 10%. Like, like I, I thought I had this mind like a steel trap. And meanwhile, so, um, so now it's just on my phone and it's in the cloud and I wake up at 2 a.m. and, you know, tap some notes down. And um, yeah, it's, it's names of, of characters. You know, I'll come across a name in a book or a newspaper article and like, oh, that's a cool old school black name. Um, and maybe it goes somewhere. Um, if I, uh, I used to, for research, walk around Harlem. Uh, it's not my neighborhood, so it was really new to me. And I would think, oh, maybe that's a place where Carney's office is, or um, he grows up across the street from the subway tracks. Is it this corner or that corner? Uh, that could be a good place to dump a body, which is like work, but also just <laughs> practical. Um, <laughs> and then it goes into my, my phone. These things, these contingencies might, you, just, you know, you have to be prepared. You never, you know, never, you never know, you never know. Yeah, I get it. I understand, yeah. Um. <laughs> well, my daughter got, you know, did like 23andMe, that DNA testing. I was like, now I'm in a system. Like, I can't kill somebody because they're going to know because my daughter was curious about her heritage, <laughs> you know. I, <laughs> I thought of a thousand jokes, but I think I'm going to leave it right there. Um, <laughs> You were a TV critic for a while up to college. I, uh, when I got out of, out of college, I worked at the Village Voice. Um, and uh, so in 92, was when I started working there, and my first article was a think piece about the series finales of the show's Growing Pains and Who's the Boss. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think it really holds up as a definitive think really? piece about- Really? Yeah, have you gone back to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I really That's hit the, hit the marks. Proud, yeah, you're proud of your work, yeah. It's a, it's a paying gig. Yeah, 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 yes. <laughs> well, I was, my follow-up to that was, how do you think that experience shaped your writing? <laughs> well, I mean, I, um, uh, the great thing about that paper was that once you were inside, you could nag people for work. And so once I had that clip, I could take it to the music editor and the film editor. And um, uh, that's where that was my apprenticeship. I didn't get an MFA in writing. It was really sort of writing once a week or a couple times a month with different editors, and different editors have different styles. Um, uh, I became less precious about my writing and saw it as a collaboration. He, um, if you didn't have a piece in, you're like, oh, will I ever work again? And so you learn how to get things in on time and be your own boss and sit down for five hours to get the piece out so you can get food and pay your rent. And so. When you write books, no one cares if you're working or not, so you have to find that discipline. And I got that discipline from working at a newspaper and, and having to get, having to produce. That's what I was thinking about, is that, that discipline that you get from when you are scrambling, just project to project. Yeah, I mean, um, it'd be great if uh, you had that sort of pressure to write a certain number, of, write a page a day or a certain number of pages a week, but um, you really have to, when you're writing a book, have that inner fascist on your shoulder that tells you to work. And luckily, I found the inner fascist. <laughs> if it works, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the character development, too, of the character that's in all three of these, these soon-to-be three books. Um, Ray Carney. I, I, what's the inspiration for Ray Carney? I think I read in uh, some research that I was doing that you said, you've said that your father had a temper growing up. And I was wondering if your father played any part in your development for Ray Carney. Not really. Um, uh, 
you know, sometimes I'm in my character, sometimes not. You know, I think with Ray Carney, I'm drawing upon my real estate fixation. He has the same idea that if he finds the, the right apartment, uh, the right house, he'll be cured. Then, of course, he gets a new place, and there's a new sort of place that might fix him better. And definitely in my life, I've always, like, you know, if I can just get that corner apartment with the sunlight, you know, I'll be less depressed or whatever, and then I move in, and I'm like, no closets again? Like, how do I not notice there's no closets? Or what's that rumbling? It's not the subway again? I keep doing this to myself. So that's in, in Ray Carney's makeup. And then, so, but, um, and then sometimes there's nothing at all in my characters, like Core in the Underground Railroad um, has the least amount of me in her, which is probably why it's my most popular book, I, I imagine. <laughs> but is there a piece of you in every character to some degree? I know they, that's, a, that's a, a trope for, for novelists. But Yeah, I mean, and the supporting cast, definitely, yeah. you know, um, uh, I think it's my job to make even the villains recognizable and, and human, not just two-dimensional, you know, terrorists. And so hopefully the, even the slave, mask, the slave catcher in Underground Railroad you can see him as a human being and not just what this um, uh, very slimly uh, portraited uh, villain. So I am taking pieces of me, people, people I know, and, and, and building up uh, a main cast and supporting cast that is hopefully human and recognizable. Well, one of the, well, I guess he's not a supporting cast. He's actually a major player in this. His Uncle Pepper, um, Ray's uncle, and... Carney's uncle, and, and at one point you write that Uncle Pepper was a professor of esoteric disciplines, which I, I, I love that phrase, I just love that line. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Pepper and, and sort of his development. Well, yeah, you need some, uh, some foils for Carney, and so he's a neophyte to the criminal world. Uh, Pepper is someone who worked with his father um, in criminal enterprises, and he's our Yoda. He shows us how the world works. He's very has a very flat affect, um, like I said before, sort of half a sociopath. And one of the inspirations for doing a crime series was uh, Richard Stark, uh, the pseudonym of Donald Westlake, and he's a character named Parker, who's a master criminal, safe cracker, low affect, who would be a millionaire, except he has to keep working with losers. And so all of his, his gang always lets him down and they, lose the, they, plot, they plot and plan, but lose all the, the loot in the end. So um, hopefully there's some of Parker and Pepper. And in the second book, you know, there's a bigger canvas, so I gave Pepper his own adventure. So the, the 1973 section is him on a missing persons case. He's an unlikely investigator. And it's great to see Harlem and the criminal world from his point of view, and also Carney from his point of view. Um, we get to see Carney as a, a family man. Uh, Pepper is an isolate, and he gets to look at uh, Carney and his wife and kids and see himself there, what he's given up, what he sort of secretly wants but won't admit to himself. And so the action changes to accommodate this different perspective and hopefully you know, it just makes a, a makes for a richer portrait of the time in the story. There's there's a um, a very interesting um, way that you develop Pepper in that chapter where he is he's a lone wolf basically in his life, but you can his thought you you're kind of spying at his thought process and his his thoughts about 
and he kind of flirts with the idea of what if he went another way, like Ray's way and had a family. Um, and then all of a sudden, there'll be a very violent, quick violent act that comes out of nowhere with him. Um, I, I'm wondering kind of where the research came for you to find that character a little bit, where, where, what you read, what you were, you know, where that came from. For him, it's more, uh, I think, his need to sort of the story, and then as you make him real, he becomes his, his own person. And so um, uh, definitely as a, someone who outlines and plots, I know what people have to do in the story. I know some of the themes. But they don't really become living, breathing creatures until they first appear. Mm. Um, so they have a function, uh, but they don't become real until I get that physical description or they start talking. So with Pepper, you know, he had a, a purpose as a, uh, a guide to the criminal world. And then, you know, page by page or incident by incident, he's become, you know, uh, I think a, a fully fleshed out character. And in both Harlem Shuffle and, and Crook Manifesto, of course, Senator Andre Carney, and, and he's a so-called fence, um, the person who is the, quote, wall between the criminal world and the straight world. Can we explain that? Sure. I mean, I wanted to do a heist story, and so I had to figure out who the hero is. And then um, uh, I hate in a heist story when the fence comes in, and the fence uh, comes usually two-thirds of the way into the story. The, they pulled off the heist. They've stolen two million in jewels. Half the gang is dead. The cops are on their trail. They're sneaking around. And the fence is like, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. I'm like, no. You did all the work, and then this guy comes in. And I hated the fence so much that it seemed like maybe he'd be a good character. You know, I wrote a book about being a teenager called Sag Harbor, growing up in the 80s. And I didn't like being a teenager. I don't like reading about teenagers. I don't even like teenagers. So it seemed like to force myself to embrace the other would be good um, in that way and in this, in this story as well. So I did some research. Uh, there's actually a book called uh, The Fence. <laughs> and then uh, he wrote a sequel called The Professional Fence. Um, I guess there was a market uh, <laughs> for the sociological study. And uh, they're very compl you know, complex creatures or they, they point to a complex psychology. A lot of them will have a legit storefront where they sell appliances or furniture, like Ray Carney, and then the back of the stores where they have their illegal business. And so that suggested a divided psychology. And that really, you know, that's real shorthand for, for Carney's uh, character. He wants to be uh, an upstanding member of the community, enter into middle class, uh, be a good family man. But there is that part of him in the back of his head that's always like, let's do some crimes. Um, his father was a, a criminal, and that was his model for manhood. And he rejects it, but also you know, gives into it. And so just the, the choice of having a fence uh, paid, off really, paid off really well. Yeah, what, what other dualities are you playing with um, in this series? Because he, he's living, a, obviously, a dual life. But it seems like every character at some point is living a dual life. Well, I think, you know, not all of us are furniture store salesmen or, or fences, but we have our, our different sides that we, you know, we are one person at, at work with our families, with our childhood friends, uh, one person when we're alone. And so I think people can see some of themselves in his compartmentalization. Uh, you know, um, he's putting out this, this false front or 
which one is real, really, you know. Um, but he has these different, these different facets, and over the course of the book, I get to see him wrestle with these different parts of himself. Uh, he's rejecting his criminal side, embracing it when it serves his purpose. In the, in the first book, there's a revenge scheme. He gets slighted and uh, has this really outsized uh, need for revenge. And so he's giving in to his sort of dark side uh, because it will give him a, a temporary sense of justice. But a lot of the times he's denying that he has these terrible impulses. And I think some of us, some of us know that we're maybe not doing the right thing all the time and excuse it or make ourselves forget. So, so hopefully even though he's a very distinctive character, there's overlap with, with us. The third act takes place in 1976. Bicentennial year, bicentennial year um, for the U.S., of course. You go into great detail about what this meant for the country at large, but what it really meant for black residents in Harlem and how different it really was. I if yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, celebrating the birth of our country. Uh, it means one thing for white citizens and does for black citizens. One of my favorite things about July 4th uh, on social media, it was when someone tweets uh, Frederick Douglass's famous essay, what is, the July, what is July 4th to a slave? Um, obviously, the ideals set forth. Um, in, in 1776, we live up to them or don't. Um, uh, the guys pulling our, the founding fathers pulling our nation together are half of them are slavers. So what does that mean to all these grandiose words? So what does it mean in, in 1776 uh, to celebrate um, our independence when so many people are not free? And so, you know, it's a crime novel. Um, but I do talk about money and class and then, uh, you know, what's freedom? We're getting some questions from uh, the audience. I wanted to bring these into the conversation. Um, a couple here I wanted to bring up as we're talking about Carney. Um, I worried about Carney from the beginning to the end of Harlem Shuffle. Was he smart or lucky? And do I need to keep worrying about him? Well, there are three books, so supposedly I guess he gets to the 80s. Um, he could die halfway through the third book and the, you can you breathe know, the, easy. then his morning, you know. Um, but he's very, he's very different than the people in the Underground Railroad and the Nickel Boys who are very much hemmed in and controlled by institutional racism, slavery, or Jim Crow laws. And from the very first page of Harlem Shuffle, I felt very liberated to tell jokes and have my weird humor in there, but also to have a protagonist who gets to win sometimes. So um, he's getting himself into trouble and he doesn't always win, but he does, you know, engineer some reversals, as, as I put it. And um, so he's a very different, very different character. It is a, it's a crime novel, and he's suspense. And when he does slip up, there is the chance for lethal repercussions. And for me, uh, it's fun as someone who's plotting the, the stories to get him into trouble and then figure out how to get him out. 
We mentioned Cora, Ray's wife, um, a few minutes ago. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Cora is uh, underwear railroad, and yeah. I apologize, yes, I was thinking about uh, that. that. Um, Since you revisited Carney, would you consider revisiting Cora? Um, Her story's definitely done for me. Um, This is the first time I've had a world I wanted to return to or a character, which is why I think it kept dividing into three stories and then two books and and then three books. Um, Cora's story has definitely ended uh, at the end of Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get to the end of the book and want more, you can watch the TV series, <laughs> I guess. It's 10 hours long. It's a really uh, well-done production, and you can uh, see what she looks like and how she speaks. So, Did you have a lot of involvement with the screenplay? I didn't. I was um, working on Nickel Boys and... And uh, I, was def- I was done with the story and happy to hand it off to Barry Jenkins. At that point, uh, his movie Moonlight had not come out, but I saw like a rough cut and I was like, okay, he's the man. So, um, so we had a few conversations, but I didn't you know, um, have any contact with it until like a week before COVID, we, we shut down for COVID, uh, the whole country. I went down to Georgia and saw the set and it was just really, a miraculous adventure to see 150 people who'd given up two and a half years of their life to bring uh, the book to life. I'm in my apartment, you know, in 2016 going, all right, there's a red wagon. Why not a red wagon, blah, blah, blah. Uh, sort of sad man in a room. And then three years later, five years later, I'm on set and they're like, here's a red wagon you described. Well, look, I have no recollection of that. Um, <laughs> But they're really, they're really faithful. They're being faithful, yes. <laughs> Appreciate the attention to detail. <laughs> and then I actually saw it when it was done, and I was really, you know, I was just so blown away and honored. You know, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. They really uh, knocked it out of the park. That must have been a, um, a relief, that moment of, of, of watching it and going, yep, they got it right. Um, I had my own compartmentalization. I just, you know, I just sort of gave it to them, and whatever they did would be, it would be separate. Um, but in the first 10 minutes, just seeing uh, their faces, like when I write, um, I, know what, I know what my characters do and, and who they are, but I never actually picture their faces, just my, my weird quirk. So seeing the people they cast uh, was like a little, just like kind of really miraculous, like, oh, that is Cora, that is Mabel. And then to hear the music and the clothes, I, I mean, it was just, you know, really uh, beautiful experience. Well, speaking about detail, um, you have a real 50s furniture fetish in this series. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really just accidental. I had to um, figure out what would be Ray Carney's front business and uh, this furniture and people trying to pay for their first living room set. You know, the sort of social aspiration is in furniture, seemed to be good. And it turns out I just have this weird fetish for mid-century modern furniture that came out over time. Um, I think because as a kid growing up in the 70s and watching like the Brady Bunch or Twilight Zone reruns, that's my first furniture. That's like my, my Ur furniture is like these sort of low couches with like tapered legs and boomerang uh, dino- uh, coffee tables and, and lamps. And, and so... Um, I imprinted as like a shut-in kid upon this kind of <laughs> furniture, and, and that's what Ray is selling in the 60s and 
When I think of growing up in the 70s, I think of harvest gold appliances everywhere. That's just me. Brown carpeting, a lot of shag, wood paneling, but sounds like you had a, a better time than I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when you're, you're coming up with that, that, that idea, that kind of in for, for Carney's business, Were there other considerations for, for the fence, other ideas that he would be running a drugstore, running a, a supermarket, running, you know, a convenience store? No, I mean, it was, it was always furniture, uh, at least as far as back as I remember. But a lot of my jobs, you know, I make a decision about a character's job. A lot of my books, I make a decision about my character's jobs. And then it starts paying off as I live with the story and the characters, and so... Uh, my first book is about elevators and elevator inspectors. You know, I was, I just had a weird idea for a detective novel where an elevator inspector would be the lead detective. And then um, elevators enable the modern city. We couldn't build over five stories without elevators. So they're actually a very powerful technology. Um, uh, it's modernity in a kind of way. There's social uplift, uplift the race. And so all these different metaphors suggested themselves the more I thought about elevators. Um, so... Does that take you down a rabbit hole? Do you do a lot, just tons and tons of research on elevator inspectors? Yeah, luckily I don't have any hobbies or things I enjoy doing. So I'm really <laughs> um, happy when I have something to do, like, like do some research. Um, and it's gotten easier over the years. You know, there's so much online, whether it's a library, database, um, uh, Pinterest, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. thing you're into, somebody else has put it on Pinterest. And so if I put in 50s furniture catalogs, somebody has scanned, you know, all these different catalogs from different um, companies, and I can steal the language of the champagne finishes and the, the boomerang coffee tables. Um, uh, so it's good for me, you know, I don't like leaving the house, and so I find when I leave the house, there's so many, the word, um, people, <laughs> and if I can avoid people, it's usually a good day for me. So, you live um, in New York City. That's why I don't leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is, that, is it hard for you as an introverted person by nature? I mean, you're a writer, obviously, so you spend a lot of time on your own. Is that hard when the book is finished and you put it out in the wild and you're coming out to do these, these book tours? Is that, is that tough? Because I, I am alone so much, it actually is nice to, to share it. You know, I'm not writing these books and then putting them in a drawer and then writing another one. I actually I, I enjoy it when people um, come along for the ride. And so I feel very lucky. Over the years, um, you know, reading to five people in a bookstore, uh, to a theater full of people, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that people have responded to the work and then, um, then I get to go back home and, 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 and uh, be in my office again. And, and definitely being in a crowd is different. And I, you know, after this, I'll go into my hotel, <laughs> Dracula, recharge in the dark. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I, you know, I feel very lucky to be able to do it. We've got some more questions uh, from the audience, and I wanted to, to get these in a little bit before I ask you about the third book, I know Crook Manifesto just came out, but we, we've already got some details, I think, and maybe a little preview uh, of the third book. Um, first off, what are you reading or watching that's inspiring you right now? 
Um, I'm reading more nonfiction these days, and so uh, uh, David Graham, you know, it, oh, it's great when David Graham has a new book, so his new book, The Wager, was great this spring. Um, and when I was younger, in my 30s and 40s, and, and more engaged in the culture uh, because of work and my interests, um, I used to read a lot of pop culture histories, but that sort of fell off. But this spring, I read um, David Hodges' Positively Fourth Street, which is about the early days of uh, the folk scene, 1958, early 60s, the emergence of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. And I don't even like their music from that period, but it's uh, a really great um, narrative of you know, people find their voices and they come to New York and, and sort of make themselves in Greenwich Village, uh, the heart of the new folk scene. And he's such a great chronicler of, um, uh, of that time. So that's what I've been, been reading, mostly nonfiction, not so much fiction. That's, that's a sign of a great writer that can make you interested in a subject that you generally don't care about. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Like I love books for, you know, just like, the title is like salt, you know, and it's like, yeah, I'll read 600 pages about the history of salt, or like doorknob, you know, uh, I'm totally down for those micro histories. There could be some really interesting backstory there, you know, yeah. who knows? <laughs> yeah. um, in Harlem Shuffle, this is another question from the audience, in Harlem Shuffle, I loved how Ray is manipulating his use of time and sleep to try to do everything. Will he keep doing this? In uh, Harlem Shuffle, there's a little examination of a thing called Dorvay, which is um, segmented sleep. Apparently, before we had electric lights, you know, some people, you work in the fields all day, nightfall comes, you go to sleep, and then you wake up around midnight, and you're up for two hours, then you go back to sleep. And it was just sort of a natural bodily rhythm a lot of people had, um, and we sort of forgotten about it. So I came across an a, a article on it and squirreled it away. You know, one day I might use it. And it seemed when I was writing Harlem Shuffle that Dorvay, that time, like 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. or midnight to 2, was prime time, crime time. It's when all the criminals come out, uh, either criminals, insomniacs, artists, or alcoholics. And, um, and I guess I've overlapped with different parts of those categories over the years. And so it seemed when Carney's embracing his criminal self that those midnight hours of industry uh, might be very useful. So it was a good metaphor for the middle of the book when I was exploring that sort of dual nature. You know, you're one person during the daytime, a different person at night. So it does not come up, but um, there's still that, that split in, in, in this book. Um, Carney has his secret life. He has a, a wife he loves, but he's sort of making up stories about why he's coming home late and stuff like that. And people always ask, you know, how much does Elizabeth know and how much does she not know? And definitely I address that in this book because, um, you know, you might have questions about where your husband is sometimes. Elizabeth, um, again, and I think as the book goes on, you really flesh her out as, a, as, as her own individual character as well. She becomes much more of a protagonist in this story. Well, I, I mean, the cool thing about the book is that it is, you now it's 20 years, and so uh, his kids, John and, and May, are babies in the first book. In the second one, they're teenagers in the third book. They'll be at college. Um, and Elizabeth uh, comes to her own in terms of business. You know, she works at this travel agency. And um, in the 60s, she's 
plotting vacations for black travelers in the South, hotels you can stay at, hotels you can't, which towns are safe to travel through in the Jim Crow South, which ones aren't. Uh, that changes in the 70s, and so she's evolving um, as a person and as a professional. So, you know, charting all these different characters' lives over 20 years, um, it's new for me and also just a, a wonderful challenge to figure out uh, how does women's liberation change Elizabeth. Um, and, uh, yeah, so very worthy. I don't want to give anything else away, but there, there's, more, there's, there's so much more there, yeah. Um, how much of the third book is done? Is it? I'm on page 54, but I'm on page 54 for like four months now. I've been sort of <laughs> doing other stuff. But then um, uh, in the fall, I'm going back to it. I'm really excited to uh, be done traveling. And, and for a year and a half, I'm, I'm just going to be working on that. So um, yeah, usually it takes me about a year to write a book, and then I'm on to the next thing. So having a project over time, uh, now, you know, five or six years. It's just been really wonderful, and, and I am always scribbling down, you know, uh, notes where in the 1980s, is there an opportunity for, for Carney? Is it 82? Is it 87? In the, in the early 60s, we have this sense of JFK, New Camelot optimism. In the 1970s in New York, there's a fiscal crisis, and Crime's at an all-time high. We come out of it in the 80s again. Wall Street's booming, but looming at the end of the booming, and looming at the end of the decade is uh, the AIDS crisis, the, uh, the Wall Street crash of 87, and New York City, the crack epidemic. And so, you know, Carney has these ups and downs in his life, and so is the city. And so mapping both of those, you know, has been really rewarding. I love how this, this series is tracking Harlem through those decades and, like you said, mirroring Ray's life in ups and downs. It's, that's a fantastic metaphor. A um, couple of other questions. Actually, this, this, is a, this is a good question that just came in from the audience. Do you ever think you'd write a book on writing? Oh, you know, um, uh, I'm so, like, Everyone has to figure out their own way. Everyone works differently. And so I can never deliver, think, writing advice with a kind of authority that people want. Um, I'm very much like, whatever works for you, do it. Um, if you want to write every day, write every day. If you want to write um, half an hour every day, do that. And so I'm probably a bit too wishy-washy um, and equivocal to uh, have that stern voice you want in a writing book. I know you've said before that you know, once you've, you've tried something in a book, you're done with it. You like to, to move on, why do it again? And yet I'm writing Another a trilogy. <laughs> so, but in, that's doing something new because I've never done that before. So that's true. That's, that's how true. I look at it. That's true. Um, oh, this is a good, um, not a question. Uh, this, this, this audience member just says, I love your pants. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure he's, they're referring to you. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I'm always, you know, up, waking up at weird hours, like, I've never had yellow jeans before. So I got these, I'm wearing yellow jeans for folks at home. Um, it matches the cover of the book, if you don't. It does. Yeah. And um, I got them in the mail, it was like two years ago. I was like, wow, those are really yellow. I don't know what I was doing. Was I drunk? <laughs> you know, when I caught these. And then um, this spring, I felt comfortable breaking them out. 
Why not? So they're sort of aspirational genes, and eventually I... I, I, I think it's a fantastic look. I, I'd walk around with them all day long, every day. They look great. Um, I think you get all purple, yellow, blue. You get all kinds of different colors. They look great. Um, nobody's commenting on my pants. You could. Um, <laughs> There's something else I wanted to, to, to ask you about going back to, um, to uh, Crook Manifesto, and that is the metaphor about the fires that are taking place in the 70s. They seem to provide this tangible metaphor for kind of the destruction and rebirth of, of, of the borough. I mean, do you see it that way? Did you, did you feel that way when you were writing it? Well, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's before my time, you know, as a little kid, so I don't remember the fires themselves, but I remember being in a car going through the Bronx or Upper Harlem and seeing these devastated blocks, you know, block after block of, of, um, of, of rubble. And, you know, there's, there are a lot of urban pro uh, projects that ruined neighborhoods. We're going to bulldoze these warehouses and put a highway through. We're going to uh, put a highway straight through this bustling neighborhood. The neighborhoods wither. Um, uh, crime starts to rise, empty apartments, and there is, there's an idea that a lot of the fires in Harlem and, and the Bronx in the 70s were all insurance fires, um, people trying to you know, get money from insurance companies, and that's part of it, but part of it is just neglect. You know, you have an abandoned building, uh, people move in, um, there's a, a stray cigarette, and it is really, a, a lot of it was about neglect, and so, um, that becomes a big part of the third, of the third section. Um, it's seeded through the earlier sections. I sort of see the book as, and Harlem Shuffle as like three novellas that come together Voltron style to create a novel. And so I am building up to the third act uh, and there's fires in, in one small way in, in the first section and in the second section a little bit more. And then the third section, it becomes part of a sort of larger political landscape. You know, I, one of the first detective movies I really connected with was Chinatown. You know, you think you know what's going on, but there's this whole other thing. And there's a, a murder, some blackmail in the beginning of Chinatown. Then you pull back and get to the history of Los Angeles and the real power brokers. And I love being able to, able to do that in Harlem Shuffle and, and Crook Manifesto, pull back from my street level view to really, really embrace and look at the larger corruption and the real players. And in the first act of the novel, Ray is, is actually determined to get his daughter tickets to see the Jackson 5, as you heard Dreadnought play some Jackson 5 when we came, we came in today. Um, what is it like to write historically about pop culture figures that would later become pariahs, really, which you did with Sag Arbor? Well, that's part of, you know, um, uh, I, you know, I'm picking pop culture that can serve the book, and the Jackson Five is a period-appropriate uh, teeny bopper band for 71, so his daughter at age 15 will, would naturally want to see them. Uh, there are a couple things there. There's that. There's the trope in the, the crime story of the guy who wants to leave the business, but they pull him back in. So at the beginning of this book, he's quit being a fence, Ray Carney, and then they pull him back in, so it's fun to play with that. And then... There's uh, the service level and then what's behind it. And 
the, you know, Michael Jackson's true story um, sort of feeds into the larger theme. You know, they're a happy teeny bopper band, but their father's abusing him. He goes on to become a million dollar recording artist um, and is also abusing kids. And so uh, the Jackson Five is a really sort of open reference. And pretty much I've discovered that if I put someone in a book, it's like a curse. Like Sag Harbor has a lot of pop culture in it. It has Mel Gibson, because the kid's really into Road Warrior. There's a thing about the Cosby Show, because there's a middle-class black family and aspirational. Um, there's some stuff about Africa Bambata, early hip-hop figure, and it turns out he was abusing kids. So we get Mel Gibson, eventually uh, anti-Semite, super racist. Bill Cosby, drugging people, doing all sorts of terrible stuff. And then... Um, uh, African Bambata. So I felt like with Sag Harbor, if I put you in the book, eventually you would be <laughs> found out. Um, and this book is happening in the past, and so I'm dealing with people who's already been exposed and not cursing anybody. Well, there's also some references to pro wrestling in the book, talking about um, something that kind of came of age in the 70s, that, that kind of show, that kind of wrestling freak show, with Carney at one point telling his son John that it's all a show, it's all rigged, and then you go on to ask if the audience, this is, you're asking the reader, if the audience is in on it too, is it rigged or merely just the world as it is? Yeah, I mean, going back to the theme of corruption, uh, there's low-level corruption, there's the corruption of politicians and real estate barons and Wall Street fat cats. So, how bad are these low-level crimes? Everyone knows. If everyone's doing the same thing, how, how bad um, are these low-level crimes? Um, and how implicated are we if we know what's going on? And so um, I tried to bring in this sort of idea about Carney dealing with his own culpability. Um, he sees himself as a part from a lot of the criminals in Harlem Shuffle and Crook Manifesto, but he is literally a criminal too. Um, so how disengaged from uh, uh, moral bankruptcy is he? And, and yeah, are you inside it? Are you outside of it? Or are we all in on it? Yeah. I, I've heard that you write to music, is that true? I do, you know, I've, I grew up in New York, it's a very noisy place, so I've, there's always like a police siren, an ambulance, neighbor upstairs being choked to death, their screams <laughs> echoing. And so I've always did my homework, you know, the cheers, you know, the sitcoms are on, uh, did my college papers to run DMC and The Clash. And so now it's me natural. Too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so it's natural for me to have music on. And now I have like a 3,000 song playlist that goes from Daft Punk to Edith Piaf to um, public enemy, and it's just my favorite people um, inspiring me. Do you have a specific playlist for specific scenes? No, I mean, people think I'm listening to like, black exploitation soundtracks or cool R&B, and instead I'm listening to the OCs, this new uh, neo-garage band, punk band from, from San Francisco. I'm listening to French electronic dance music. Not period appropriate stuff at all. Uh, it's just stuff I like. So you didn't immerse yourself in, in 70s? Well, that's, I mean, that's in there just because from a lifelong, yeah. you know, knowledge. But I didn't, I didn't have to do any research. It's already 
you know, the theme from Shaft has already been in there for 20 years. Yeah. Um, across 110th Street is the uh, a theme of a black exploitation movie I saw when I was little, and that I did go back and rewatch some black exploitation because that's a, a plot point in the book. But, but a lot of the, the, the soundtracks that are famous, Isaac Hayes, it was, was, was already in my sort of master playlist. It's ingrained. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you what a pleasure it has been to have this conversation with you and, and talk with you tonight. And, and yeah, I enjoyed the, enjoyed the books, enjoyed many of your books, and it's been a real thrill to, to have the conversation with for you For me, tonight. too. Thank, thanks so much. And I want to thank the audience, too, for your questions. Thank you for coming out and participating. I, I hope you had a good time tonight. I had a good time. You have a good time? I'd like to, to thank our, our house band, Dreadnought, for bringing us in. They're going to bring us out. Thank everyone here at the Music Hall as well. The Music Hall Executive Director, Tina Sautel, New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO, my boss, Jim Schagner. Um, also producer, New Hampshire Public Radio's producer, who is an extraordinary producer of Writers on the New England Stage, Sarah Plord. Uh, the Music Hall Live Sound and Recording, it. yeah, let's go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer is Ian Martin. The Music Hall Production Manager is Shauna Morris. The Music Hall Literary Producer is Brittany Wasson. And Musical Director and Band Again, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. And once again, thank you to Colson Whitehead.